going to go out with Tarzan Boy. Well, Mission Impossible, I thought, was much better. Yeah, I have to agree. All right, we're hip deep in files. Taking a look here at uh, cover story Sacramento B. Demolition crews last week tore down the boat dock at the Rayleigh's Landing in West Sacramento. And I must say that uh, I have um, quite a few memories of that, uh, of that boat dock. The article notes it was once used as a boarding place for paddle wheelers and water taxis, but it has sat dilapidated and unused for five years. So the state ordered it removed as a hazard, uh, but they're planning to build something in its place. I hope so. My best memory is uh, cruising up the river one time in my cabin cruiser and having a couple stand on the uh, dock and sticking their thumb out to hitchhike. Imagine their shock when I pull over and picked them up. I got alongside, and they said, really? I said, sure, you want to go for a spin? And they really enjoy that, and so did I. But, of course, Radio Parallax does advise that you use due caution when picking up hitchhikers, whether along the side of the road or at a boat dock. Although my own personal bias is to think that you do get a better class of hitchhikers at boating docks. All right, to continue in the miscellaneous file, I want to note someone in the Sacramento Bee, I guess it was uh, Jeff Carrasca, echoed our sentiments here in Radio Parallax that we need fewer pointless college bowl games. The article noted that, uh, as we did, that the Minky Car Care Bowl on New Year's Eve features Northwestern and Texas both at 6-6. Six and six. And if you are keeping score, and unfortunately we are, the bowl game carnage to date leaves four teams with six and seven records at the completion of the bowl game. Wake Forest, Northwestern, Georgia, and Ohio State. And most scandalous of all, perhaps, UCLA, which went into the game six and seven, lost the fight hunger bowl and dropped to a season low of six and eight. College football, a national disgrace. How about this item? The California Supreme Court Justice... Tani Cantel Sakauye, I believe that's how it's pronounced, said in a recent interview that the death penalty is no longer effective in California. Well, I think this deserves further examination. And, and I suspect the Chief Justice has been misinformed. And I'd be willing to go on record as stating that no, murders, rapes, mayhem, child abuse, or really any other crimes have ever been perpetrated by someone who received the death penalty. Now, I admit that when I say this, that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors of the regents of the University of California. I would stand by it and further embellish it to say that there are a few things in life more effective than the death penalty in certain contexts. And I don't know, in terms of its effectivity, I'm pretty sure that everyone who received the sentence and marched down to have that punishment meted out, um, did find that things went as planned. Well, the Chief Justice can say it's, it's not effective. We know that. But uh, some of us would beg to disagree. I do suspect that what she meant was that it's not effective as a deterrent, which no doubt has some truth to it. But I am reminded of what L.A. Police Chief Ed Davis once said when asked about the death penalty. 
which was that you don't shoot mad dogs to serve as a deterrent to other mad dogs. And, and frankly, I think it's pretty hard to argue with that. And speaking of mad dogs, the wolf and the dog are, of course, uh, really variations on the same animal. And a lot of wildlife authorities are kind of uh, excited by the fact that California appears to be on the verge of having a wolf population for the first time in 87 years. At least one wolf that we know about with a radio tracking collar around its neck has wandered in uh, from eastern Oregon and is right uh, perched on the California border. Wait, strike that. That's the old article I have in front of me. According to Matt Weiser in The Bee, the wolf has come on board. I realize this is a bit of a stretch to call it a wolf population, a population consisting of one. But you do have to start somewhere, I guess. This two-year-old wolf, known as OR7, has roamed 750 miles, according to Matt Weiser. I don't know, unless OR7 gets some company, he may have to wander back to Idaho. He's planning to do some reproduction. But to having some of these predators on board is a good thing. Article in uh, Men's Journal, of all things, of November of this year, talked about how in Yellowstone, after years of neglect and, and government-mandated kills, wolf packs are thriving again and uh, are doing good things for the park's ecosystem. According to stats compiled in the magazine, they note that the wolves killed 268 animals, including 211 elk, last year. The elk herds have declined by as much as 50%, and they spend more time running and less time grazing. And uh, as a consequence, without these elk munching on so many saplings, the aspen, willow, and cottonwood are now growing to maturity. Of course, with more willows, there's going to be more habitat, more food for beavers who dam streams and make more ponds. And further down the list, these streams, once they thrive, uh, will you know, enhance the roots of trees and shrubs being able to grow, keeping erosion at bay. And this will, in the end, make more ponds and healthy streams and more habitat for frogs, fish, insects, and reptiles, all as a consequence of having the top predator back in the environment. Sounds like a pretty good thing. For some of you may be well aware that the, uh, the California state flag has a bear on it, originally called the Bear Flag Republic before we joined the U.S., briefly anyway. And uh, that bear is a grizzly bear. Grizzly bears have been extinct in California since the 1920s. I have to admit, frankly, I'm a little less keen on bringing that predator back. Wolf or two is one thing. Grizzly bear, quite another. But uh, much smaller on the predator food chain list is the fisher, the Pacific fisher. Uh, they have been extinct in California for quite some time. And so the California Department of Fish and Game biologists have decided to try and bring some fishers back. They've been released in Northern California up near Lake Almanor. And these weasel-like predators are uh, expected to um, incorporate themselves back in the ecosystem. They released 39 of these Pacific fishers, which, which look like they look like a sort of a, a, something between a wolverine and a weasel. I know a lot of you city folk have probably never seen a weasel out in the wild. Yours truly did have one as a sort of pet for a while as a kid. You look back on the things you do sometimes and you have to marvel at the craziness of them. One such example would be that after my grandpa had plowed the local fields, to which they were like sort of flat as asphalt for a while, somehow into this milieu strode a weasel. Without any refuge, the weasel was kind of wandering around looking dazed, and some neighborhood kids came over to tell me, hey, there's a weasel out there. I ran out, threw my shirt on top of it, and wrapped it up, 
grabbed a garbage can and tossed the weasel in the back and kept him around for a few weeks. How I didn't lose a finger or two, I'm not sure. I want to tell you, those things are mean. Although he did warm up to me slightly after I kept feeding him hot dogs. But of course, all good things must pass, and after a while I released him uh, back out into the orchard. Local farmers, of which my grandfather was one, would shoot them at every opportunity. To digress slightly, I remember one time a, a weasel coming into where we were drying the apricots out in the field. He'd pop his head up. My grandfather loaded up the 410 and went out intent upon blowing him away. I did find myself rooting for the weasel who did make a successful escape. Apparently do have a very nasty habit, I presume fishers may do this as well, of going into, say, a hen house and going into kind of a killing frenzy and wiping out not just one hen and eating it, but, uh, you know, attacking and killing all the ones they can get their hands on. Needless to say, this does not, did not endear them to uh, farmers. Nevertheless, we're pulling for this fisher population up in, uh, up in the foothills and Sierra, and I uh, hope they can, you know, incorporate themselves into the ecosystem. I'm sure they'll do some good. And uh, in other mammal-related news, we may have to redefine what it means when you call somebody a dirty rat. In the wake of some recent experiments uh, reported in Science Magazine, According to David Brown writing in the Washington Post, in a simple experiment, researchers at the University of Chicago sought to find out whether a rat would release a fellow rat from an unpleasantly restrictive cage if it could. And the answer, it turned out, was yes. They would put a, uh, one rat inside a container in a rather confining arrangement. And uh, when the free rat, hearing distress calls from its compatriot, uh, would come over, it would seek to open the cage the other rat was in. When they continued this experiment, as the rat learned how to do this, it would, it would do it ever more quickly and would do so even if there wasn't a payoff from the reunion with the other rat. What really surprised researchers was that if they gave the first rat a small hoard of chocolate chips, apparently the free rat would save at least one treat for the captive, which noted David Brown, is a lot to expect of a rat. This caused the researchers to come to the unavoidable conclusion that what they were seeing was empathy and apparently selfless behavior. Interesting stuff. We are waiting for them to conduct a similar experiment involving Wall Street CEOs. We feel fairly confident that a CEO hearing the distress calls from a confined compatriot would not exhibit similar empathetic behavior. That's just a guess on our part. I'm damn certain they wouldn't save any chocolate chips for them. Anyway, speaking of rats, Condoleezza Rice is apparently coming to town next week. And I must say, it just makes my blood boil to pull out some of these files we've collected over the years and take a look at uh, Rice reflecting on her legacy as she left office in, in late 2008, saying that she regrets the bad intelligence that, that took place on Iraq. And it's true, there was some bad intelligence on Iraq, particularly the stuff made up by the administration, which was based on, well, not reality. Anyway, if someone goes to see her next week, when she comes, I guess, as the California Speaker Series, will someone ask her about being a war criminal? Because it, it really is a fair question. And when she appeared on her local NPR affiliate a couple years back, she pretty much got a pass. What's funny about reviewing these various articles I've had over the years is that uh, whether it was 04, 05, 06, 07, 2008, there seemed to have been the question posed year in and year out of, why don't we just declare victory in Iraq and leave? Oh, but doggone, I have an article here that where we did declare victory. 
That was in April 20th of 2003. So I guess it wasn't the declaring victory part that was the problem. It was the leaving. Well, somewhat amused in a bitter way to see the peace in December 29th, Sacramento B. Michael Schmidt, Eric Schmidt, noting how the Obama administration is moving ahead with a sale of nearly $11 billion worth of arms and training for the Iraqi military, despite concerns that the Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki is moving to consolidate authority, create a one-party Shiite-dominated state, and abandon the U.S.-backed power-sharing government. To that we say, what could go wrong? And look at pieces from like 2004 saying, from regime change to a war that may last years. Yeah. It is good to ask some pointed questions about what was gained and what was lost by the fiasco in Iraq. Noted Doyle McManus in the LA Times last month. As troops trudged home, no one even tried to use the word victory. For keeping score, it was more than nine years, 4,500 U.S. troops dead, 33,000 Americans wounded and maimed, nearly a trillion dollars spent, Estimates of at least 100,000, perhaps as many as half a million Iraqis killed. And one of the parts I like best is that as we leave, I found one article talking about the $30 billion we're going to spend to rebuild the Iraqi infrastructure. As we leave, they still don't have power in the country 24-7. After eight years of rebuilding, how much do you suppose they like us now? And if I may digress slightly, I would note that in my opinion, this war was never about regime change or any of that nonsense. It was always about having to have an enemy and making gobs of money. The fact this involved one of the world's most oil-rich states certainly increased people's motivation in some circles. Let's face it, nobody in Washington gives a crap about how well the government's doing in Paraguay. But, you know, we could do a whole show just on the corruption, the amount of money that's disappeared, the billions that have disappeared. The plane loads of shrink-wrapped pallets of $100 bills that disappeared. And yes, as we talked about in this program previously, that really did happen. Tens of billions of dollars in cash that vanished and no one can account for. I'm looking at an article. March 14th, the day after the war began. March 14, 2003, article by Edward Epstein, Chronicle Washington Bureau. War cost estimate approaching $100 billion for starters. Remember when certain bean counters said this war is going to cost hundreds of billions and they were laughed at by the neocons running the show. Oh, that's ridiculous. This war will pay for itself with oil revenues. I think for the time being, we'll, we'll abandon this topic. Except to note that we did mention in passing the, when Christopher Hitchens left us a couple weeks back, and while it's true, as Christopher Buckley reported in, in TheNewYorker.com, that uh, Hitchens may well have been one of the greatest essayists in the English language of late, while being one of our more colorful characters, i.e. legendary drinker, smoker, and bon vivant. Well, Hitchens could be enormously entertaining. We would cite Glenn Greenwald's comments in Salon.com, who noted that when it came to the war in Iraq, Hitchens' views were nothing short of repellent. He'd begun his career in the extreme political left, but said his first reaction to 9-11 attacks was exhilaration because he knew they would unleash an exciting, sustained war against what he called Islamo-fascism. In the run-up to the Iraq war, 
Christopher Hitchens ardently defended each of the Bush administration's bogus pretexts for toppling Saddam, then cheered on any slaughter of Muslims with a vindictive and barbaric glee that bordered on the pathological. Said Greenwald, Hitchens went on to his grave fully unrepentant and even proud of his contribution to one of the darkest, bloodiest chapters in U.S. history. And looking at a piece I saved from 2004 by Christopher Hitchens about uh, why this whole Valerie Plame thing was a bunch of BS, I have to note sadly that, yeah, sometimes he sure was a jerk. When he wasn't being a jerk, we'd agree with Stephen Carter in Bloomberg.com, who said that what made him so remarkable was his devotion to clarity of thought and his brilliantly polished language. Some examples, Hitchens on Sarah Palin said she was a proud, boastful ignoramus. After visiting North Korea, Hitchens said, said that, well, it's a place with newspapers with no news, shops with no goods, and an airport with almost no planes. On that note, let's take a short break. Listen to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Ah! 